Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week The Economist asks, what made the world's great universities let women in? My guest this week is a scholar who's examined the changes in universities in the 1960s. We'll be hearing from her how prejudice... A senior colleague opined that she could not be a serious scholar because she was raising children. ...gave way to progress. They began to admit Catholics and Jews, even some African Americans. So admitting women followed logically. And asking how far universities still have to go. The higher you get, uh, the tenured faculty in the United States, the dons here, the fewer and fewer women you see. In the 1950s, Ivy League universities and Oxbridge colleges had very few women students or academics. And in some cases in America, tentative progress from earlier in the century was being rolled back. But these all-male institutions soon found themselves at odds with the upheaval of values and challenges of protest in the 1960s. But in the end, when change came, it did so only with the acquiescence of the same leaders and elites who'd upheld the old system. So what really made that change happen and what can we learn from it today? My guest today is Nancy Weiss-Markill. She's Emeritus Professor of History at Princeton University and her book, Keep the Damned Women Out, recounts the struggle to open up elite university education to women. So first, Nancy, what is the change that you set out to explore here? I set out to explain why very traditional, very conservative, very elite, very old colleges and universities on both sides of the Atlantic decided to admit women all at once, starting in 1969 in the United States and ending in 1974 here in the United Kingdom. The University of Cambridge in 1972, three colleges, uh, Churchill, Clare, and King's, admitted uh, women. And in 1974, the first five, Oxford, admitted women, Brasenose, Hartford, Jesus, St. Catharines, and Wadham. This all happens in a surprisingly short amount of time, which I hadn't realised I thought this was a gradual process. What drives it so specifically from 1969 onwards? In the United States, it's applications. Schools like Princeton and Yale begin to see their applications drop off and begin to see the very best high school boys deciding that they want to go to other places, especially Harvard, where Radcliffe women were just up the street. And Princeton and Yale couldn't tolerate the notion that these very best high school boys, as they called them, uh, didn't want to come anymore. And so they decided to admit women as a way of retaining or restoring their hold on these best 
boys. Women were to serve the purpose of making the best boys uh, comfortable again at those institutions. And was this something you, you experienced at first hand as you were growing up as a student and later as an academic? When I was growing up in the 1950s, uh, going to college in 1961, if you were bright and you were female, you aspired to go to a Seven Sisters school, women's college like Smith Wellesley. And what began to change by the end of the decade is that high school girls had the chance to think about places like Princeton and Yale, and that changed everything in terms of the opportunities available. Did you go to an all-women's college yourself? And what was your own attitude at the time to that? I went to Smith. I thought I was extraordinarily fortunate. Um, uh, It had many, many advantages for me. Um, uh, I was, like all the other students, uh, the principal business of the institution, the faculty were there uh, expressly to teach me and my fellow students. There were ample opportunities for leadership, for learning how to participate in the life of the institution and how to change institutions, try to make things better, ample opportunities to respect the intellectual talents of other women, and all the encouragement in the world to go on to the uh, sort of career that I might find fulfilling. And did you then later reflect that things needed to change. I mean, what drove your own thinking on that topic? I came to Princeton University in 1969 as an assistant professor of history, as it happened at the same time that the first undergraduate women students came to Princeton. And I began to see quite clearly that Princeton, as a coeducational institution, could offer my women students all the opportunities I thought I had had at Smith. So tell me a bit about the attitudes of particularly American elite academic institutions at the time. Were they distinct from what we now look at as a kind of prejudice in society that was more accepted than it is now? Or did they have distinct problems with women and men being together, studying together? Well, the assumption at the most elite institutions was that women and men uh, studied separately that the role of elite men's institutions was to prepare leaders for the professions, for the society, and those leaders were to be men. And it was believed that there was a special uh, camaraderie, a special fellowship that came from an all-male institution. Alumni in particular of these institutions felt very strongly about the all-male experience. And the title of my book comes from a letter written by a Dartmouth graduate class of 1929 to the chairman of the board of trustees at Dartmouth in 1970 when Dartmouth was beginning to consider coeducation. And this man wrote, for God's sake, for Dartmouth's sake, and for everyone's sake, keep the damned women out. That was very typical of alumni of these uh, institutions. There were alumni of Princeton who explained that if women were admitted, Princeton would be dead. There was uh, an alumnus who wrote to say that having disconcerting mini-skirted young things cavorting on the playing fields at Princeton would simply disrupt the institution as he had known it. Another Princeton alumnus wrote that instead of all this nonsense about 
co-education, they ought simply to establish a whorehouse, which would be much less expensive and much more efficient. And a slightly different business model too. Uh, Do you think it was protest that drove this change? Or was it really market forces? Uh, I think market forces were extremely important. At the same time, the institutions themselves began efforts to diversify their student bodies in the 1960s. So in the United States, that meant admitting students from public schools in larger numbers so that instead of the hegemony of the private independent schools public schools would become much more important. They began to admit Catholics and Jews, even some African Americans. So admitting women followed logically in some ways from that kind of diversification. Here in the UK, in the 1960s, many of the colleges, well, some of the colleges at Oxford and Cambridge are beginning to look to state schools, to grammar schools, to supplement the traditional student body coming from places like Eton and Harrow. They're beginning to try to represent the nation more fully in their uh, student bodies. So formal rules of de facto sex segregation start to be abolished. But what about informal sexism and how did you experience that, particularly in in your own early career? It's difficult for people to adjust to having others among them. And it was certainly challenging for uh, men at Princeton, even with the best will in the world, to adjust to having women among them. And that's because they didn't have any experience with it. They didn't. They had experience with women as wives, as daughters, as sisters, but not with women as colleagues. And so they often unintentionally expressed their views in ways that would make you cringe, if not worse. For instance, in my case, a colleague who, after I was there for a couple of years in the department, we were considering a tenure case for a woman faculty member, and a senior colleague opined that she could not be a serious scholar because she was raising children. Or in another case, we were doing a search for a faculty member, and uh, we had a candidate who was a woman, and another colleague opined that I was in an impossible position because if I was for her, it would be because she was a woman. And if I was against her, it was because I preferred to be the only woman in the department. When I was hired, the chair of the department, a distinguished British historian, Lawrence Stone, said in my interview, it's not that we have a policy against hiring women, it's that no one has ever suggested it before. So if you look around Nancy at academia today, both sides of the Atlantic, plenty of student protests, what have they learned from the past? What is relevant from this story to now? There's still quite a distance to go in terms of making these institutions fully co-educational. Student bodies tend to be quite balanced in terms of men and women, but if you look at the people who are teaching them, the professors in the United States, the fellows and tutors, the dons in the United Kingdom, they are not at all well balanced in terms of gender. And the higher you get the tenured faculty in the United States, the dons here, the fewer and fewer women you see. Who's doing better, Britain or America? I think the United States is doing a bit better, not not enough better to feel very good 
uh, about it, however. And how should institutions then open themselves up to more change? What, to your mind, would make most difference? Well, I think that what has to happen is that the people who hire in our universities and colleges need to imagine that talent can come in a female form as well as in a male form. They need to imagine women as leaders. They need to be prepared to look for talented women. You can't just sit back and wait for applications to arrive. You have to actually look. And when an institution is searching for a faculty member, you need to make sure that they've considered women. And if they present final candidates, all of whom are male, the higher authority at the institution needs to say, wait a minute, where are the women? And if you haven't considered any women, go back and look for them. I wonder, just to be devil's advocate as we come to a close, whether you might be fighting the last battle. Someone said to me high up in in a corporation that they worried that diversity had really shifted to meaning ethnic diversity and that that was what the universities were more concerned about, particularly in America, but, but probably on this side of the Atlantic in Britain as well. And that the result was, as institutions find it quite hard to do more than one thing at once as a major change, the woman's question, you sort of haven't finished the woman's question, but you've moved on. Is there a tension there that doesn't like to speak its name? They're both very important and they're both very difficult to accomplish. And uh, you're right, ethnic diversity is uh, front and center now. But I think Theresa May becoming uh, Britain's second female prime minister reminds us that even success at the very highest level doesn't translate down. If you look at the British Parliament, it is uh, more skewed, significantly more skewed toward men than 50, 50. But it's had a massive influx of Oh, it absolutely has. But if you look at the United States Senate and House of Representatives, we've made a lot of progress, but we have a long distance still to go. Similarly, American universities in the Ivy League, normally half of them now have women presidents, but that doesn't mean that their tenured faculty is sufficiently balanced in terms of gender. So we need to remember that we still have work to do. Nancy Weiss-Malkiel, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. And if you have any thoughts about what you've heard today, do get in touch with us. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can always send an email to radio at economist.com about keeping the damned women out or perhaps letting them in. That's it for this week's Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist. 